hello everyone. So I'm going to be quite busy for about three or four weeks over over Christmas, um, directing The Marriage of Figure and of course being continuing as general director of Seattle Opera. But this isn't the first time I've done that. I did it with The Marriage of Figaro in New Zealand uh, when we did this production in 2010. It's not something I'm going to replicate in the future. We in the administration get a bit detached from what we're creating and so it's it's quite salutary being general director to to be on the rehearsal room floor once again just to as it were recharge my batteries and, and remind us that the art we create is our raison d'etre. I'm glad to say this production went down exceedingly well in in New Zealand. I think what people responded to was its freshness. What struck a lot of people was how clearly they could follow the narrative. And that pleased me because that was actually what we set out to do. This is an opera about plotting and it has the world's most complex plot. It's a plot with sort of kind of three distinct plot strands which all interweave, you know, that of Figaro and his marriage, the threat of Marcellina and also the Carabino plot line as well. We had to to come up with a a scenic and dramatic scheme which enabled the those levels of plot to be introduced very clearly. It was important the audience have an entry point at each level of the storytelling. I said to my team, why why does Marcellina uh, who has brought Dr. Bartlow into the castle, her, her ace, as it were. Why has she brought in her secret weapon into the one space where she's quite likely to find Figaro? It makes no logical sense at all when Barbarina is searching for the pin. If she's instructed to take a pin to Susanna, who's a housemaid, why would she go outside with the pin? She goes straight to Susanna. So we evolved a scenic scheme which enabled us to move around the castle. We gave the piece a visual rhythm uh, as well as a musical rhythm and by changing perspective changing space continually we were able to tap into more modern ways to to receive storyline than I say what were fundamentally a convention of 18th century theatre. It's an opera about forgiveness it's an opera about the longing for the union which marriage brings. It's an opera where human behavior, the plotting element, which is so crucial to it, is kind of human behavior at its most devious. All the, the, this, this very complex, pl- multi-layered plot all takes place in a, a time span of sunrise to sundown. The palace itself becomes a a miniature version of an entire society. It's a fascinating look, a fascinating snapshot of the interaction of power uh, and those on whom power is wielded, of people's desires, people's people's longings, people's aspirations, and above all, what is good and responsible behaviour. So I thought what I would do now is give you a little insight into all the characters of this extraordinary opera. So these are the, the traits I will be encouraging our singers to, to adopt as they, as they mould their characters throughout the process. Figaro. We know him from the Barber Seville. The thing about Figaro is that... Although he's the arch-schemer, he 
thinks on his feet. He he reacts to a situation and comes up with a, a quick uh, fix. But the other thing about him in this opera is that he tends to be the last person who knows what the latest twist is. So he goes off, charging off in, on his own to alter events to, to suit his purpose. And yet when he comes back, he finds that behind his back, things have moved in a completely different direction. So he has to think again. This is rather wonderful. We, we see it, therefore, in the very moving aria in Act 4, where he's convinced that Susanna has deceived him on the day of his wedding. We sit there in the audience thinking, you're a fool, you know. <laughs> uh, open your eyes, because um, he's, he's blind to what's around him. But we love him, because he's, he, he stands uh, for what is right, and he's not afraid to stand up to the Count, questions the, the Count's behaviour on, on more than one occasion. Susanna, his bride-to-be, we meet for the first time. She's not in Barbersville. And Susanna knows that she has a problem I think one of the things we're trying to get in this production by changing location is I want to have a suggestion that Susanna will spend her, her entire day moving from room to room around the castle whenever she hears the Count's voice. She's going to make sure she doesn't meet him. The trouble is that when she hears his voice, she's in a potentially compromising situation with Carabino, and then it's too late and, and he, he traps her. But she's witty, she's clever, she's aware of the danger of what she does in terms of the plotting, but it's all designed to achieve the best possible end, and that is her marriage to Figaro. One difference between the two of them we wanted to suggest in the very first scene is that Figaro is very concerned about where the bed is going to be. And I think that emphasises a kind of masculine view of what this wedding night is about. The bed is important to Figaro. To Susanna, the hat, the wedding veil, is important because it's a symbol of union. In a sense, Figaro's very male desires are not that far removed from the Count's. This opera is about him learning a lesson that the best marriage is a union of both of them, that he, he needs to listen, he needs to work with Susanna, not charge on ahead in a very, again, a very masculine, I will take control of the situation sort of way. Susanna's interest is not so much on the marriage night, so much as the union itself, that this a marriage is a lifetime commitment for two people. Figaro's behaviour, in a way, is almost symptomatic of, of a freelancer, of a contract worker uh, in the city. He seems to have left a, a freelance existence as a barber in Seville. He's come back into service. Now he's found his wife, he realises that the perfect union is that of a pair. He needs to allow Susanna's thoughts into his way of living. They will be better for this day they've just spent. Figaro's lesson to learn is that actually together as a team, you will be stronger. We then come to the aristocratic couple, the Count and Countess Almaviva. It's important to remember that Rosina of Barbara Seville was middle class, and she is now by marriage in the aristocracy. One of the ironies of the piece is that she is by far more the complete aristocrat in terms of manners, sympathy, understanding of the people who work for her, 
than the Count, who's born with a sense of entitlement and actually misuses that. And we see evidence of that, I think, in his character in The Barber of Seville, where he's intolerant of anyone who gets in his way, especially the middle classes. He rather disdains them. And that intolerance of other people's view is very evident in this piece. Interestingly, of the Count, Beaumarchais says that despite his poor morals, he has to deport himself with style and elegance of manners. We, the audience, see very clearly the difference between the display of politeness. Think of Act Two. Of course, when he's alone with his wife, or when he thinks he's alone, then we see a very different count from the person who is in public. We see when the chorus coming in. So he's a complex character. His plotting relies on other people. He's, he's not really bright enough to plot for himself. So he's relying very heavily on either his own charm to, to win Susanna over, and failing that, he's relying on the legal niceties of Marcellina's claim against Figaro. For me, one of the most fascinating characters is Countess Almaviva in the Barbara Seville, which is meant to be two years earlier. She's been lifted from a middle-class status to aristocracy, and very quickly she has understood the importance of dignity, of wisdom, even if that means her own personal feelings are compromised. And her husband, the born aristocrat, actually is irresponsible and he misuses power. There's a tendency to play the Countess as a rather mature figure, and that's not the case at all. This opera takes place a couple of years after the Barbara Seville, and we imagine Rosina in Barbara being maybe 17, 18, so the Countess is maybe 20 or so. Figaro and Susanna should be a little bit older. These are two young characters, the Count and the Countess, and there's a more worldly wisdom to Figaro and Susanna the Countess. Necessity draws her to be more and more resourceful as she plays a very risky game in Act 3 uh, with the plot in order to go disguised as Susanna to an assignation with her own husband and making a, a huge sacrifice by publicly shaming her husband but doing it with grace and forgiveness. You see, in fact, that moments before the revelation scene, that the count is all set on punishment. And we learn a huge irony, and this is, of course, what Beaumarchais is really indicating, is that behavior and manners is innate rather than a right of a social class. In this instance, it's actually the middle class Rosina, who has become Countess Almaviva, who is imbued with natural grace and feeling. And once again, it's the man who's learned the lesson that it's actually the Count who should be leading, whose class dictates that he leads with generosity and benevolence, who is in fact, to a certain extent, corrupted and, and dark at his core. There are certain elements of Don Giovanni in, in the Count, although without the blackness at the heart of that character. Her forgiveness is an all-important moment.
Whether the Count will carry on philandering in a week's time, probably he will. But I think that's not necessarily the point. I think the moment of his understanding is the crucial one. He's unmasked, but his plea for forgiveness, music Mozart gives us, is more than superficial. It isn't just the situation playing. He realizes what he has done. He's shamed, of course, but he could lose his temper. In, throughout the rest of the opera, he would have lost his temper and bluffed his way out of the situation. But here something very different emerges. Mozart's point is that dignity and beauty of thought can win the day and can change people. That, for me, is the meaning of the opera at that one moment. And just taking that further, that seems to me that the essence of the difference between opera and maybe straight theatre, this is an opera moment where a deep and extra level is brought into that moment, which is implied by the music. Whereas if we think in a strictly naturalistic fashion or the world of film, we apply criteria about what's going to happen after the end of a reel. But the musical and dramatic moment which Mozart and De Ponte give us present a moment of insight and understanding, which is the kernel of the scene and by implication of the opera. Considerations of what's going to happen afterwards don't really count in this context. We actually, in this production, have a moment where we think in Act 2 that the Count and Countess are back together again just before Figaro bursts in in the Act 2 finale. We wanted to have a sense that the Countess is still a young girl and actually, although they're now sleeping in separate rooms, there's a large bed in her bedroom and that's there for a purpose. And for a very brief moment, he's about to get into bed with her and, and, and we think, oh my God, all is well. And Susanna is you know, politely leaving the room and then in bursts figure and it all goes to custard again. But we wanted to sense that both characters have a libido, that the Countess, even though she seems to be no longer in the Count's interest, she is a woman in her prime, and um, there is yet no child. This is probably a concern for her. She would expect it to have produced offspring by now, and obviously one of her concerns is that she hasn't produced a child, and furthermore, the Count is showing no interest in coming to her room. We mustn't underestimate the importance of producing an heir. The character who acts as a fulcrum is Carabino. A page boy is a bit like an intern these days. <laughs> Um, he would be sent by another family to learn the correct aristocratic deportment and manners. So it's hardly surprising that Garabino, if, if the Count is his role model, that he's become a little Count himself. He represents the way an aristocracy can slip into decline. So in other words, we can see how the values of propriety, of justice and, and, and morality can slip if the head lets it slip as well. The play is written at a time of social upheaval where the ruling aristocracy was deemed by the classes below them as being corrupt and, and being in decline. I think the structural positioning of Carabino is precisely to illustrate how that can happen. He's the living embodiment of the next generation of the Count, and he will go back and then inherit his family's castle, and he will behave like the Count does, because that's what he's been taught. 
Interestingly, in Beaumarchais's notes at the end of the play, he indicates that Barbarine is 12 years old. Now, you have to add on two or three years because puberty arrived much sooner in the 18th century than it does today. But we'd still say she's probably about 14 by today's body clock. Carabino is kind of 14 or 15, but therefore add on another couple of years in terms of our understanding. So he's like a 17-year-old to us. He's passed through puberty. He represents a real danger to the Count, and it's why the Count doesn't like him. He's clearly charming. We play the scene in Act 2, when he's left alone for a brief moment with the Countess, that for a moment she is very flattered by him. And we compound this by the decision to play Barbarina as being pregnant. I want the audience to not quite know whether it was the Count or Carabino, and I don't know what the answer is, but one of them did it, that's for certain. And again, that decision was not just an idle one, because we wanted also to suggest that producing children is an important part of this society. And we first see Barbarina shortly before we see the trial scene, where Figaro is revealed as the offspring of Marceline and Bartolo. So we wanted to get into the audience's imagination this nature of a society where those in charge seemingly can casually impregnate those beneath them. In the other case, it's Bartolo and his housekeeper, Marcellina, without any real concern for the consequences. So Bartolo has clearly ordered Marcellina to abandon their baby in order that his social position is in no way compromised. That was the reason why we decided to make Barbarina pregnant, because we wanted to give it a tone, give the palace a tone where this was fairly normal. Barbarina is the daughter of Antonio, so they don't live in the castle. They live probably, you know, like a tenant farm or something, very close because he's the gardener. And she undoubtedly milks the cows and and feeds the chickens uh, and things. And I think she would have grown up with cows producing calves every year. So I think the idea of getting pregnant is is no great deal to her because she sees it as a natural cycle of life because she she deals with that every day. I guess we wanted to suggest it is part of life and that the marriage construct is what elevates us as as humans beyond the mere animal cycle. A true marriage construct needs to be based on love, not just on a contract. And that of course brings us to Bartolo and Marcellina. Marcellina is claiming a contractual right to have Figaro as a husband. This is something which will never work. And, and of course, Figaro never intended it. He never in a million years dreamed that she would hold him to it. Why is she doing it? Because she knows she's at a stage in life where that marital bliss has passed her by. She's on the shelf. We always think of her as being older, and she needn't be that old. She's not a youngster, but she's often played as a, a sort of harridan of you know an elderly woman. But I always think she should be measurably younger than Bartolo, so that just as the Count visits Barbarina, so Bartolo has taken advantage of his relatively young housekeeper. Bartolo has been brought to the castle by Marcellina as her respectable testimony. I mean, you know, he's not a lawyer, and, and his aria is complete guff, really. He's, you know, he's, he's um, 
blundering on about what he he was going to do, talking utter rubbish. His respectability as a senior person, as a, as a professional in Seville, down the road in Seville, in Marcellina's eyes is enough to act as a credible witness to the truth of the document she holds. So he's not from there. He, he doesn't live in the castle. She's presumably been brought there by Rosina. So she's, moved, like Figaro, has moved from town to, to the castle. What is a woman's option in life without marriage? It's a life of loneliness, no real human contact other than through work. So I think over the time of multiple visits from Figaro to shave Bartolo, she's got a crush on him, and he probably flirted with her. This contract was probably, look, I need a few pesetas. Could you lend me them? Um, yeah, and I'll tell you what, I'll marry you. He probably did it as a joke. Actually, I'm sure that when he was working for Bartlow, there was a, there was a you know, a very good-natured banter, and he never in a million years considered that she would take this seriously. And why is she doing it suddenly? Because life is running away from her. No one has shown any interest in the castle, and I think it's it's born of desperation. It's born of a real desire for the human comfort of marriage again, and it's rightful that the consequence of her action with Bartolo are met with this union. I always ask our Bartolos not to play this thing grumpily because he's been wanting a wife as well. He wanted Rosina. I always ask the Bartolo to play it philosophically and that as the wedding ceremony goes on, to rather enjoy the fact he's now a husband and think, why on earth didn't I do this before? Okay, I couldn't get Rosina. It's about marriage. It's about the union of, of people of this new couple coming together who finally have earned their marriage at the end of the piece, about a couple who've been married for two years who've become estranged and who also learn about themselves, and the third couple being Bartolo and Marcellina. And again, I, I like to sense that at the end they are glowing and they, they're thinking, why, why didn't we do this before? Why didn't we own up to the error we made in, in producing a child out of wedlock? and actually be brave and accept it and rejoice. When Marcellina realises that Figaro is her son, for me it's one of the most tender and moving moments of all opera. I'm always rather dis distressed that it inevitably gets a laugh. You can't fight that, it, it will. But we certainly don't play that scene for laughs. We play it very seriously. All the guilt that she has felt from having abandoned her child, being forced to abandon her child, and the bitterness she has felt, which is, drives her need to have a husband, that in one moment evaporates and a huge outpouring of maternal feeling comes in that moment when she finds her long-lost son. Basilio, he's an interesting character because he has a foot in every camp. He 
he's there because he teaches Rosina singing. He, as he did before, she has a daily or weekly singing lesson. And I think in time what's happened is that the Count has learned to see how useful he can be as spy and informant as to what's going on. The Count finds that useful. In order to maintain his power base, he has his trusted ally. The fact that he changes his spots, probably the Count hasn't quite noticed. The Count is a pragmatist and he realises if he's got a corrupt regime, he needs to surround himself with people who will underpin that rather than make a moral judgment. Basilio is wise enough and experienced enough to see human frailty and, on the one hand, accept it, and, but on the other hand, use it as, as a tool. He's not stupid, and I see him played over and over again as an obviously horrible person. There are occasions when Basilio doubles with the character of Don Curzio. I don't like that because I think they are two very different people. And it's important the audience understand that. The trouble is, Don Curzio is almost invariably played as a buffoon. Beaumarchais had a personal vendetta against a particular lawyer who is, who is lampooned in, in the play. And so this awful tradition of him having a, a stammer has prevailed until now. Well, I don't think that's right at all. So we play him in a very, very different way, a very serious way. We've costumed him with a slight anachronism, a slight nod to the terror which followed the French Revolution. The Count has gone to town, got a lawyer in, known for his severity and, and meticulousness, because the legality of this contract is what will get him his endgame, which is Susanna. So the Count has a very clear mission in mind, and what's he done? He's brought the top lawyer in, a man who he knows is almost obsessed with the law. You know, the irony is this law will turn against him and his class in a few years' time, in ten years' time. Curzio and his type are playing a kind of waiting game. When the time is right, the guillotine will start falling and it'll be Curzio at the judge's desk sending the aristocrats to their early grave. But at the moment, that time is not yet here. And his strategy is to build up a reputation for unimpeachable propriety. So we play Curzio really to the letter of the law. We play him very straight. We have no attempt at him being a comic character. If anything, he's a rather dangerous character who is feared by all concerned. When the evidence turns against the Count, and, and we discover Figaro is in fact Marcelino's son, I think Kurtz is frankly annoyed at being called in from town to um, preside over a case where the evidence clearly hadn't been properly sifted through. So I think his anger is almost directed against the Count. He can't really show that overtly, but that's where, what he feels, is, is that his time has been wasted. Antonio occupies an interesting position. He, he's the gardener. He says his mind... When he says people chuck things out of their window each day, what do they chuck? They chuck the contents of their chamber pot. So you imagine this man who spends his entire life weeding a flower bed beneath the bedrooms and periodically um, stuff comes out. And the ultimate straw is this time, not only has the usual stuff come out, but this time 
someone's jumped out and landed on his prized flower. So his annoyance isn't at losing a plant and a pot. He comes bursting in in the most inappropriate way into the Countess's bedroom because enough is enough. And so I, I, I get this feeling he's, he's a man on the edge. We see he does not like Carabino. He can't complain about the Count coming sniffing round his house to see Barbarina, but he does not like Carabino. Carabino is a very useful scapegoat for all his pent-up feelings about the cards that life has dealt him. The Marriage Figure is a long opera, and uh, undoubtedly audiences in Mozart's time had more time on their hands than maybe we do today. So we did make the decision to cut the arias of Marcellina and Basilia. Each have their purpose. Marcellina's aria is in fact a sort of setting of an important speech in Beaumarchais's play where she sort of establishes the injustices carried out on womankind. She's just been married and she seems to have gained a newfound gravitas. Her tiny role in the garden scene is to act as a backstop and a, and a, a guide to the rather nervous Suzanne and, and Countess to say, no, girls, we need to do this in order to, to get our men. She has a sort of maturity through being married and through having found her son and, and now a husband. It's a loss to lose that aria, but something had to give. Basilio, it's a little bit late to justify his actions. One line of recitative captures the essence of it, and that is, if you deal, if you try to deal with the, and defeat the aristocracy, you will lose. And that's the key point. The recitative has it, and so, so we, we felt we don't really need the aria.